what I am uh, proposing that we do tonight is look through the whole book of Ephesians and then tomorrow sort of back up and take a more careful look probably at uh, several sections of the book of Ephesians. So tonight you should be able to leave with a sense of the thrust of Paul's, what I call Christ's letter to the church at Ephesus. And I think it's a very powerful book that I've spent a considerable amount of time in uh, over the last couple of years. That doesn't make me an expert in the book at all. In fact, where I'm now teaching at Beeson Divinity School, they would never ask me to teach a course in Ephesians because <laughs> I'm not a New Testament scholar. So um, I'm able to do it with you, but I wouldn't be able to do it in the Divinity School context because I'm not an expert enough in it. So I don't know what that says about the quality of the teaching that you're now about to get. <laughs> but, uh, you know, coming back to Bloomington does make you reflect on the years of ministry and uh, how the Lord has engaged us in various places, especially with respect to time. Um, you wonder how you perceive the changes physically that have taken place in Ginny and myself just over... We were here 87 to 91. That's a lot of years now in 2010. Um, and there's... As I reflect on this idea of this long obedience in the same direction, what it is to be faithful to Christ over the years in a committed discipleship kind of life, uh, there's three stories that I'd like to sort of lay out at the beginning. That if you notice at the end of the book of Ephesians, just notice how he concludes. In verse 23 of the 6th chapter. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And the scholars do debate, is this our undying love for God, or is it God's undying love for us? And there's actual ambiguity in the language, the Greek language, that would allow it to go both ways. Most of your translations, I would imagine, sort of have the accent on our undying love for God, but it could be also interpreted God's undying love for us. And how do you get to the stage of this sort of undying love for God? And the book of Ephesians gives us a wonderful example of spiritual direction, a pastor sitting down and writing to a household of faith, the church that's growing, emerging in Ephesus, as to what's involved in really being so in love that one would characterize it as an undying love for Christ. Well, 1987 to 1991, I realized that for some of you, uh, you weren't even born then. <laughs> and, uh, and it's kind of a, a students at IU now and early grad students would not have been born during the time that we were ministering here. 
And to put time in perspective, uh, let me give you three quick stories. A wedding, um, a graduation, and a farewell. The wedding, I was asked to officiate at the wedding of Elizabeth Beefus, the daughter of Steve Beefus, a close Wheaton friend who spent more than 20 years in Liberia in medical missions along with his wife Sue. Steve died of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, we were very close to the family and really enjoyed and appreciated their friendship over the years. And so I was so honored to be able to officiate at the wedding of Elizabeth, their oldest daughter, in Ohio. I was the best man in Steve and Sue's wedding. And it was such an interesting kind of a dynamic of 20 years previous, been the best man in the wedding, and now marrying their oldest daughter. And I remember thinking as a, a Wheaton student, just graduated, best man at their wedding, what it would be like to be in your 40s and 50s. And I presume that you'd have life kind of put together and that you'd be a whole lot wiser and kind of having arrived. And now I stood before Elizabeth and Billy to officiate the wedding, and suddenly those thoughts came to mind that, you know, I'm really very much the same person I was 20 years previous. Life wasn't any more put together. I do think that there's been some level of maturity, but I was struck that ministry in your 20s and ministry in your 50s is just as valuable. It's, it doesn't get more important as time goes on, nor less important. But it's how you are committed today in your relationship with Christ. And you can never put off the idea of, well, I'm going to get serious with Christ later. Or the more meaningful ministry is going to take place sometime in the future. That now is that opportunity to really grow and deepen and follow the Lord Jesus. So I use that in the sense to challenge my divinity school students that ministry isn't off in the future and you're not going to get, in a sense, more uh, necessarily uh, more meaningful ministry than you are right now in the place that God has placed you. And then, uh, in addition to the wedding, is the graduation. Before we left uh, Toronto for Bloomington, I spoke at the graduation of David Mensa. Now, you know David through your mission involvement with, the, with GRID and with the Ghana Project. Well, uh, it just happened that uh, it worked out that I was preaching at the time he walked across the stage. Well, in 2006, he spoke at the graduation of the Tamale Baptist College in uh, in Tamale in northern Ghana. Some of you have been through Tamale. And he preached at that graduation. He used the same text that I used, Hebrews 12, about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and uh, running that race. And he preached on the same text. And Brenda said that as the students were crossing the stage at Tamale Baptist School, 
she began to realize the impact that all the graduates 20 years previous in Toronto, if the impact had been anything like how God had worked in their lives in really developing a, such a tremendous ministry in northern Ghana, if that was replicated through all of those individuals that walked across that stage, the impact of God at work. And she said, as the students passed in Ghana, receiving their diploma, she said, I just began, she said, I began to weep at the impact of God's work. And the power of God's providence in moving in people's lives. Now, it's wonderful when you can kind of get something of the, uh, the span of time and understand how God has worked in that span of time, and you kind of sit back and you witness it. Uh, You know that it's not because of what you have done, but you've been able to bear witness to it. So there's the wedding and the graduation and the farewell. And the farewell took place just before we came to Bloomington. We were leaving Toronto. We had been there for 11 years, and... uh, Seven of those I spent teaching full-time, finished the doctorate at the University of Toronto in theology, and was teaching. In the last four years, we were in a small blue-collar church <coughs> east of the beaches. And uh, that's one of the reasons why ECC was attractive to us, because it was going to kind of combine both the student-oriented ministry as well as church ministry. Because with three young kids, I think Jeremiah was in fourth grade when we moved here, um, And uh, we thought we'd kind of combine all of that and felt the Lord was opening the door to it. Well, we were having the retreat at this small church. And for me, it was like I was going to break the tape. I was going to finish this race. It had seemed like for several years it was just sort of 24-7 with the church and full-time school and, and all of that. And I was just so looking forward to the release of being done. And all my problems would be solved coming to Bloomington. (laughs) I'd break the tape and have this sense of accomplishment. And I sat there and somebody else was preaching. And they were preaching on Hebrews 12. They were preaching on this text of fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I didn't even have the pressure of having to communicate at that retreat. And I sat there and suddenly, very unexpectedly, it hit me. And it's it was if the Lord had spoken to me. You think you're almost done? You haven't even begun. And those of you who know me from those days, 87 to 91, know I'm not a real emotional person. I just started sobbing. Now, everybody there thought I was sobbing because I was sad to see, uh, sad to go. <laughs> But I was sobbing because suddenly the Lord had sort of said, you think you're running a sprint. You're running a marathon. And you've just begun. And I guess in retrospect, uh, the Lord really was speaking the truth to me. Because in a way, there's been a lot that's gone on since 91 in terms of ministry. Well, if we had a focus for this weekend, it is on building up a resilience, a faithfulness, a strength in the Lord, 
for that long obedience in the same direction so that we'll last with an undying love that we will sufficiently know the grace and peace of our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit so that we have an undying love. The Christ letter to the church at Ephesus is just a wonderful, powerful, composite statement that a church really can build on and a Christian can really build on. So if you just open the letter with me, and I wouldn't even distract yourself by the outline, which is real simple and uh, skeletal. And I just want us, in the moments that we have this evening, to go through the entire letter. Now, one of the things that makes this complicated is that you're working off different uh, translations and versions. But uh, no matter what version I would pick, I imagine we'd have different versions, right? Uh I'm reading from today's NIV, uh, and so probably not too many of you have that, but probably quite a few of you have the NIV. Uh, How many uh, have ESV? How many have NIV? How many have today's NIV? I really like you guys. No. (laughs) Um, It's pretty close. Today's NIV and the NIV uh, will be pretty close, I think. So are you ready? Okay. It's not a real complicated book. I think in many respects, uh, the Apostle Paul, to me this gives all the evidence of having thought long and hard before he put pen to paper or before he dictated this particular letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice in verse 13 how he brings in the Spirit. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, do you have that? Mm -hmm. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You were marked in him with the promised Holy Spirit. The triune God, beginning with Father, Christ, and Spirit. Now, if you turn to the back of the letter... And in verse 18, the closing section with an emphasis on prayer, verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. And then he elaborates on how we are to pray. But pray in the Spirit. And then verse 23, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. You see here at the conclusion, the Spirit, Father, and Christ at the end. And at the beginning, it was the Father, Christ, and the Spirit. you see that? Jenny, do you see it? Am I making it clear? Yeah, I'll tell you when you stop making sense. Okay. But that's the inclusion. The triune God, 
Father, Son, and Spirit include everything in all this spiritual direction that Paul is about to give. Now, the first chapter is all about worship. The second chapter is all about salvation. The third chapter is all about mission. In chapter 4, we move into the body life of the church. But catch this first. Worship, salvation, and mission. Each of those two are divided into... Each of those three are divided into two. Chapter 1. All of it to do with worship. The first section is on praise. The second section is on prayer. In the Greek, two long verses. Two long sentences, I should say. Two long sentences. Verse 3 through verse 14 is one sentence in the Greek. Just unbroken praise. A steady stream of praise. Of eulogizing praise. We'll talk more about that tomorrow morning. But it's one sentence. A benediction with a beat is what I call it. It has a rhythmic flow of praise. Now the second sentence, verse 15 to the end of the chapter, is all prayer. Worship is praise and prayer. Eulogizing praise and Eucharistic, Greek word for thanksgiving, Eucharistic prayer. These are the two things that worship is comprised of. Praise and prayer. And we'll look at that praise and we'll look at that prayer tomorrow morning. Now the second chapter. You are quite familiar, I imagine, with the first ten verses. It seems that all evangelical Christians know verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We've got that down in the first ten verses of chapter 2 has to do with personal salvation. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. In a way, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 takes the first three chapters of the book of Romans. In a way from a... And again, this is, is kind of a concise version of Romans, actually. The first three verses of chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 3. And then this verse 4. But, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It's almost as if Paul can't wait to get to the but. We are so far away, we are so dead, we are so lost, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Those first ten verses focus on personal salvation. Verses 11 through 32, focus on social salvation. Having to do with the dividing wall of hostility being broken down. That which separates Jews and Gentiles. 
But that becomes emblematic for everything that separates us from all that estranges us, alienates us. That is what's broken down because of Christ. The racial division, the ethnic division between Jews and Gentiles now has been taken away because of Christ. You see, verses 11 and 12 explain that alienation, that estrangement, that in the past the Jews have been able to look down on the Gentiles because they didn't have the covenant, and they could, in effect, write them off because they were uncircumcised. Verse 13, but, you see, the but in verse 4, has the similar force of the but in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Again, we want to look at this more carefully tomorrow, but I want you to see this thrust on salvation is personal and social. It has to do with our relationship with God, but it also has to do with overcoming all that would speak of the estrangement and the alienation and the separation that we feel on that human horizontal level. Mm. By making peace through the blood of Christ, having reconciled both of them to God. And then verse 19, concluding this section on salvation, celebrates the community that we have now in Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone, the load-bearing stone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This kind of statement certainly speaks against any notion of sort of an autonomous, individualistic type of spirituality. We are brought together as a a new humanity, a new community. So worship, salvation, and chapter 3 is on mission. So, chapter 1 is divided into two, right? Praise and prayer. Chapter 2 is divided into two, personal and social. And chapter 3 is going to be divided into purpose and prayer. For this reason, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, for what reason? For this reason. On the basis of salvation, on the basis of worship, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that is given to me. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel of the Gentile, 
that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And I've become a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. And this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of his mystery. Now, the the telling point of chapter 3 on mission is that Paul does not lay down a duty for the church, does not compel the church now to feel obligated to mission, which is so often the way missions is presented. Instead, what Paul says here is, I have the wonderful, joyful privilege of being able to share the gospel with Gentiles. And he leads by example. He leads by a compelling, motivating example that this is what God has given to me, it's what God has given to us to be able to communicate this gospel. The purpose of mission, the privilege of mission, we too want to look at that more closely. But I want you to see the structure of the book first. And that leads him to prayer. Verse 14. For this reason, and this is just a beautiful passage. I mean, Paul claimed not to be eloquent to the church at Corinth. But as Augustine said of Paul, how can you read this and not feel he was eloquent? But he was eloquent not for the sake of eloquence. He was eloquent because of the force of the truth. And that's what was so compelling about Paul. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. What a beautifully inclusive sense of the gospel. That really God is Father to all. And there is no qualification to that. That's who God is. I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power. Power is a very interesting study throughout the book of Ephesians. May strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ, in the real you, in who you really are, that's what Paul means by this inner being. The person who you truly are, that the Holy Spirit might empower you so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, and then he prays this same thing four different ways. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may empower together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then this wonderful, powerful benediction, which again, we will look at tomorrow. But do you see the three? Worship, salvation, and mission. Praise and prayer under worship personal and social under salvation, personal and social salvation, and mission, its purpose, its privilege, and its prayer. Now, you understand when I reduce it like that, I don't mean to be subsuming the wonderful, powerful truth of spiritual direction in Ephesians down to some nouns. Like praise, prayer, Purpose, privilege, prayer. I mean, that that gets reductionistic. But it does help to see the flow of the argument. 
and the sense of that spiritual direction. Hmm. Chapter 4, there's only one imperative in the whole first three chapters. And then Paul will start downloading imperatives. <laughs> the compelling, committed nature of the Christian life based on worship and salvation and mission as a prisoner, as a prisoner for the Lord Jesus a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now I imagine we're not going to get tomorrow any further than the first three chapters. So now I may get a little bit more detailed as we move through this. And how we do Oh, just doing wonderful. <laughs> live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, do you all think that my calling is more important than your calling? No. All believers, all disciples of the Lord Jesus are called to salvation, service, sacrifice, and simplicity. At least it is a start. We're all called. I sometimes think that we have a sense, and tradition has given us this, that there is a special calling. Special calling for missionaries, special calling for pastors. And I really try to emphasize with my divinity school students that there is no such thing as a special calling. We are all called to discipleship. We really do believe in the priesthood of all believers. We may have different abilities and gifts and We may have different aspects that God has called us to, but we all are called to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. And this this did not compute with the Greeks. It did not compute with the Jews. It did not compute with modern professionals. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Sometimes I think, especially in the Reformed tradition, there is such an antipathy to works righteousness, to meriting your salvation, that we go so far along that line that we forget the work of righteousness, the make-every-effort aspect of the Christian life. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace And then seven ones. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, for alls. Seven ones and four alls. Poetically, Paul is talking about the completeness of the unity of the body of Christ and the comprehensiveness of that grace that God has extended to us. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been apportioned by Christ. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. The quotation here is from Psalm 68. So let's just quickly turn there, if you would. It's just interesting to see how Paul draws this connection between what was celebrated traditionally on Pentecost 
in the Jewish tradition, the 68th Psalm, because the 68th Psalm celebrates the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Let's begin in verse 4 of Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing in praise of His name, extol Him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before Him, His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families, He leads out the prisoners with singing, But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When you, God, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the one of Israel. You gave abundant showers, O God. You refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it, and from your bounty, God, you provided for the poor. The Lord announced the word. See, God has given to them relationally. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God has given to them materially and physically. God has provided a land for them. But the thing that you're most excited about, grateful for, is that the Lord has given his word. The Lord announced the word and great was the company of those who proclaimed it. Well, that's the psalm that the Apostle Paul chooses in the fourth chapter, to celebrate. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And what does he ascend mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. The incarnation is celebrated here. At the heart of the oneness is the incarnate Son of God, the Word that was made flesh, In verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Now, what should we do here? Should we divide these categories, these positions, these offices up? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, five? Or is Paul celebrating the fact that God really has given his word? He's given his word through many different mediums. He's given his word through creation. He's given his word through special instruction and revelation. He's given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I remember a conversation with an elder in San Diego who had been in the church for 40 years listening to preaching. I think this elder thought that his duty in eldering was to make sure that I did my job. But he said, the reason I'm not able to do anything else in the church is because I've never been equipped. Well, for 40 years, he's listened to the word of God preached. But what this particular person thought was that he needed a laid out methodology, extra biblical, that would tell him exactly what to do. This is not what Paul means by these gifts of apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors and evangelists laying out some kind of methodology outside of the Bible so that you can evangelize or that you can proclaim your word around the dinner table or that you can abide by that word at work. No, it's the proclamation of the word that we all share in. 
for which we have been adequately equipped for doing every good work so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. You see the contrast between maturity in verse 13 and immaturity in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up in him who is the head that is Christ. From him the whole body joined together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. From the oneness of the body and the gifts of the word through the spirit, Paul begins to describe the new ethic and the new humanity, the old self and the new self. The impact here is social. It's a visible righteousness. So I tell you and insist on it, verse 17 of chapter 4, that you must no longer live as... And for a number of years now, no longer live as, I've been saying, the Californians do. Now, Paul is not meaning anything ethnic here. What he is working at is the ethic that stands opposed to the biblical ethic. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Is not a slam against Gentile ethnicity. It's a slam against Gentile ethic, the Californian ethic, or the New York ethic. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Paul here honors the thought that we are who we think we are and how we think. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Uh, They have become insensitive to the way and truth of God. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to a sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. Now, this isn't just greed for money. This is... A greed for power, it's a, a greed for success, it's, it's a greed for the ego. It's wanting more. More money, more sex, more power. And they have become insensitive to the will of God, that which God would ask of them and expect of them being made in his image. Again, at the expense of... Uh, Sometimes defending a righteousness apart from works, we have de-emphasized the important work of righteousness and the life that does really need to be changed by God's grace. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. Verse 20, that's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now, where do you think you should take this? This is not how you learned Jesus. This is not how you learned Christ in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Boy, this brings in the whole thrust of the Gospels right into Paul's epistle. 
All that is said in the Sermon on the Mount now comes into verse 20, verse 21. Living in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And you could stop right there and talk about what it means to be a beatitude-based believer. You could stop right there and talk about what does it mean to have salt and light impact. You could talk right there about what it means to have a righteousness, not as the scribes and Pharisees, but a heart righteousness. A righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty. Reconciliation instead of retaliation. Paul can take you right through the Sermon on the Mount and apply it right here. You learned Christ in accordance with the truth that is in the historical Jesus. With the Jesus that was made flesh, worked and walked among us. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You see all the work that's involved here. To really think this through. What does it mean now to, to act in accord with Jesus, what he taught, and the Spirit of Christ? To put off the old self, to put on this new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I mean, it ties in so well with the opening praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. In Him He chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Holy and blameless. The challenge of taking that up as a believing community, as the body of Christ, always maintaining humility and gentleness. But that's a challenge that Paul is laying down for this household of faith. And then in rapid fire, staccato like. Succession. He lays out very practically, very personally, very pastorally. What does this look like? All this talk of learning Christ in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. And he gets his own abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount, I think. Verse 25 and following. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Now, speak truthfully of your neighbor. And we could, oh, we could spend a lot of time just on that. I don't think Paul is meaning here you only speak the truth to those who are in the body of Christ. I don't think at all that that's what's implied there. It's because you are in the body of Christ that you speak the truth. And to me, rather than an apologetic defending truth, more powerful, evangelistically, it's just people who speak the truth as the platform from which to share the truth. So, in a sense, the the best apologetic for the Christian faith is just your yes being yes, your no being no, and your ability to speak the truth truthfully. 
The second aspect in this list, this staccato, fast-paced list of spiritual direction that Paul lays out, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Control your temper. Don't let bitterness and, and malice hold sway. Verse 20, 28, those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. I don't really think that he has in mind here the, the tendency of Christians to be petty thieves. I think he has in mind here the idea that Christians may not, may be so, uh, think of themselves as so spiritual that they don't really have to apply themselves to hard work and real labor. No, Paul says you do. This is very important for you is to earn a living, to work hard. Must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Not even working for your own benefit necessarily, but working so that you have a capacity to give to others. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Just think of a body that uh, did not engage in gossip or trash talking or slander or any kind of malice. Only talk what's helpful for building up. How many of us look at communication as a right for, for our venting? That we have our own personal right to be able to express ourselves in certain ways? Paul would say that that's checked by the, power, by the, the right of the listener, not so much the rights of the talker. What does the listener deserve to hear so that she or he is built up? Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are, were sealed for the day of redemption. God, rid, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example. It's kind of very much like the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Once again, the Trinity is referred, referred to here. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God and then follow God the Father's example and walk in the way of love as Christ walked. Verse 3, But among you must not even be the hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because they are improper for the Lord's people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. I think that's the seventh aspect. I haven't numbered them out for you as we've gone, but if you go back... I think you'll see that speaking the truth, checking anger, giving yourself to work, not engaging in unwholesome talk, not grieving the Holy Spirit, you end up with the final thought, which is the word Eucharist. thing to be noted for is that you are a people of thanksgiving. Verse 5, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. 
God's wrath. The mention of it here, I think, is to underscore the fact that God cares so deeply for the life of holiness practiced by the believing community. God's wrath should not be confused in our minds with sort of our loss of temper and the kind of uh, expressions of anger that sometimes we are given to. God's wrath is an anger expressed against that which is destructive for ourselves as well as for others. The story that comes to my mind that helps me anyways illustrate God's wrath, and I bet I shared this with you, but I don't think that you can remember back to 1988 sermons. I, what always comes to mind when I think of trying to understand the wrath of God was when I talked my brother into uh, lighting up our plastic car models. I forget how young I was at the time, but with gasoline and matches, we lit up our car models just to see them flame out. And the smell of the burning plastic must have um, drifted into the house. And my father came out to the garage to see what his two sons were doing, and he exploded. And he saw the open-capped gas can and matches in hand and I'm sure that he pictured his two sons on a burn treatment ward. And I didn't get it. I didn't understand what he was so upset about. It's our car models. <laughs> Until this, you know, now whenever I see a red gasoline can, I think of my dad. He didn't even touch me in that particular instance. <laughs> but he was so angry of my ignorance and of what I was doing and how I was leading my brother. And I think God's anger is totally righteous for our sake. I remember that sermon. Do you remember that sermon? (laughs) (laughs) Verse 8, For you were once... Darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but by everything exposed by the light, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleep, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15 to me starts another section in this new humanity. You know, the old self, the new self, and describe this uh, ethic of what it means to follow the example of Christ has been laid out in very practical, down-to-earth terms of telling the truth and avoiding slander and living pure. But verse 15 to me underscores the relational Christ. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And I want you to see this double imperative there. Be careful how you live is in parallel with 
Be filled with the Spirit. And to me that's insightful in that Paul puts our concern to be living carefully, be very careful how you live, with what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Sometimes we could run off in all sorts of directions when we speak of being filled with the Spirit, but but Paul anchors that in being careful how you live, not unwise, but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And there's a participial construction in this particular section in the Greek. To be filled with the Spirit means several things. It means speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It means singing unto the Lord from your heart, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of Christ, and submitting. That's what's interesting about the grammatical structure here. Singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing from the heart as to the Lord, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what it means to be careful how you live in being filled with the Spirit. A double imperative, and then a double impact. Singing to one another, and singing to the Lord. And then the third participle, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the second word, submit, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband, has to be put in there. It's not there in the Greek. It has to be supplied from verse 21. So the verbal idea comes from verse 21 of what it means to submit out of reverence, out of a sense of holy fear of God. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. I wish we could really back up tradition And look at this verse without how tainted it has become. I suppose that's not possible to do. You can't back up history. You can't back up tradition. But so often the the only two words that have seemingly been understood here is submission and headship. And that's been the definition of the passage. You get this down, what submission is, and get down what headship is, and you've understood the passage. But I suggest to you, and we're not going to take this up tomorrow. (laughs) And on this one, I'd really just rather make the case and run. Uh, (laughs) But I see, and other scholars have seen it too, other scholars have seen this, and pastors too, that there's three paired relationships going on in this text. Submission and sacrifice, head and body, and love and respect. So rather than seeing the issues submission and headship, the actual parallel to submission is sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That that sacrifice is parallel to the submission the wife is called to do. And this head and body. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the savior. And then it goes on to say 
In verse 28, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And after all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So interesting, isn't it? You've got the analogy of head and body with husbands and wives interchanged in that. And then you've got submission and sacrifice. And then thirdly, the love and respect. Uh, Wives submit, husbands love, verse 25. And then verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, which is the great, you know, the Genesis 2.24, of the oneness of the marriage relationship. And this is a profound mystery that I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, just for a moment, you know, uh, I'm really not prepared to go too deeply into this. I, I have the I have the privilege of running into Bloomington and running out again. <laughs> but what really is the difference between submitting and sacrificing? And not just sacrificing once, but a lifetime of sacrifice and a lifetime of submission. And what really is the difference between loving, really loving, and respecting, really respecting? Doesn't respecting include love, and doesn't love include respect? And if uh, the husband takes care of the wife as he takes care of his own body, isn't he respecting the body and loving the body? And what really, can you really separate out head and body? You really can't. I mean, that's the whole image here of the oneness of the marriage relationship. So what we have, I think, traditionally turned to in order to talk about the difference between a husband and wife, Paul intended to talk about the unity, the beauty of this marital relationship of husband and wife, this one flesh relationship where love and respect and head and body and submission and sacrifice can't even really be separated as it's woven together in Christ. What's really remarkable is, in fact, that Paul would talk about this even. I mean, this is, this is so counterculture to his time to talk this way about husbands and wives loving and respecting one another, of being so united as head and body. The preferential treatment of the male in that patriarchal Roman culture, the Ephesian culture, was so high, and the woman perceived so lowly, that it's just remarkable the way Paul puts this poetically together, where the husband, like Christ, lays down his life, and the, the burden of the responsibility of preserving the oneness of this relationship belongs to the husband. The burden of the responsibility belongs to the husband. If so if there's any preference here at all, it's a preference that's measured in sacrifice and cost. Not in privilege and power and authority and hierarchy. In a few moments there'll be time for questions, but we're going to move on. <laughs> Chapter 6 in this relational Christ and this caring Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, 
that you may enjoy long life on the earth. What? I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? That children are addressed. In a moment, slaves will be addressed, but children are addressed. They have a part to play in the social fabric of the body of Christ. They are being talked to now about their responsibility. This is a great open door now, uh, you know, when you think of the Christian community, that we empower children to play their role in the social fabric of the body of Christ. Children, obey your parents. That parents have an obligation to teach their children how to respond to fulfill their responsibility within the body of Christ. For this is your right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Have you covered that in the original Big Ten yet? You're on your way. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. We could spend a lot of time on the slave issue, as understood within Paul's thinking. I see Paul operating basically as a subversive pastor. A counterculture move on his part. Um, It's interesting to expand this paragraph by taking into account Philemon and how practically and pastorally Paul approached the issue of undermining slavery within the body of Christ. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Now you know that slavery in that era covered the full spectrum, really, of occupational roles, from what we would call privileged professional positions right down to menial, ordinary tasks. Slavery is always a slavery. Um, And so I think that it does not do well to just simply distance ourselves from first century slavery or from... uh, Slavery that was practiced in America. Slavery is slavery. But here is the modus operandi that Paul is concerned to give within his context that the slave, the low one on the totem pole in society, sees himself as under Christ, serving the Lord, not people, because they know the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good you do, whether you are slave or free. And masters... Treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both the master and yours, both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. The relational Christ, the caring Christ, the Christ who will lead, I think, to social change, and more. so much more could be said about that. But we come now to the final picture, the strength of Christ and the spirit of Christ, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, I think that this has been what Paul has been after all along. He's written in 60 to 62 under house arrest in Rome to the church at Ephesus, a church that saw themselves as beleaguered, a minority, without substantial voice in society, a weak and discriminated against group of people, 
And he is desirous of them really understanding their strength in the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth. What I find unique about the armor description is that really it would be legitimate to go in two different directions on each one of them. The belt of truth is, yes, the truth of the gospel, but it's also being truthful. Buckled around your waist. Truth and truthfulness with the breastplate of righteousness, not only the passive righteousness because of what God has given to us, the imputed righteousness of Christ, but it's also the righteousness that is worked in our life because of Christ. It's so the work of righteousness plus the imputed righteousness of Christ, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's not only peace with God, but it is the peace of God. Mm-hmm. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith is not only faith in Christ, but it is the faithfulness of Christ. So that you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the salvation that we await in the future and the salvation that we experience today, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, all kinds of prayers, With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that when I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. That word fearlessly is the very last word of the book of Acts, where Luke describes the ministry of Paul as going unhindered. It's translated in Acts as unhindered. It's translated here as fearlessly. In any case, it's a word that Luke thought defined the ministry of Paul, even though under house arrest in Rome, the gospel is going unimpeded, unhindered. You know, from the world's standpoint, everything was shutting down Paul's ministry, but Luke still saw it under the power of the Spirit of God as going forth unhindered. And this is what Paul is asking for prayer for. Not to get out of prison, not to have better prison food, not to have a little stronger uh, body, but that he would be able to fearlessly make known the mystery, which is the mission of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. I just find that kind of almost cute at the end. Um, I'm sending you Tychus, and I trust in him impeccably to be able to communicate to you what's really happening in my life. We would all like Tychus friends, but I mean, the better question probably is, are we a Tychus to others? Can they trust us with really representing them in a way that Paul could of Tychus? Peace to the brothers and sisters in love, with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Okay, we've walked through the Christ letter. 
a piece of spiritual direction designed and organized in such a way as to, I think, shape the believing community. Do you have any questions, comments? We won't drag this out. I think they shut off the air conditioning system um, at a time. It must have been 8 o'clock. It may be on a timer. Uh, Any questions or comments you want to make? Or do you want to save them for the morning? I'm interested, uh, Doug, in this, how this area of the armor of God fits in with the rest of the book. It just seems like that's just, oh, by the way. Oh, I don't think so at all. You know, the force of the praise and the force of the prayer, this, I think, leads to that concluding picture of the the full spiritual armor placed on the believer. You know, we've had a habit, don't you think, of running to that as a vivid image. And I think we've actually felt that chapters 1 and 2 and 3 are kind of boring. Mm -hmm. And we run to the new humanity. We run to the old self, the new self. We we kind of run to that kind of emphasis. And I think we... And that's why tomorrow we're going to spend all that time in the first three chapters... I think that's really important as a foundation for seeing this picture of strength. You need the praise, you need the prayer, you need the salvation, personal and social, you need the mission understood, all leading up to that picture of strength. I was thinking of the, of the warfare with the uh, weapons of our warfare, not carnal, but mighty through God, They're pulling down the strongholds. Well, and we fight not with the weapons of the world. Right. Uh, Which I think fits then with Paul's other images, like he talks of himself as a clay pot, or the thorn in the flesh. All of this kind of fits. Are you not coming tomorrow morning? (laughs) Different way to say uh, you know, I, um, well, just very quickly, Ephesians is written to a beleaguered body of believers. And the book of Hebrews is written to a, a group of believers that give every evidence of being complacent and indifferent and in danger of apathy. In Hebrews, we have the idea that you could, in fact, lose your salvation. If you don't pay attention to this. And Paul says, well, I don't really think that will be true of you. But don't let it happen. Whereas in Ephesians, he grounds this confidence in the fact of all that God has done. He's chosen, he's blessed, he's adopted, he's redeemed, he's forgiven, he's predestined. God has done it. And you, you and I, we exist within that field of grace. So I... I <coughs> I actually do believe that that's exactly what Paul means to say, is that before the creation of the world, you were chosen. And I don't see that as incompatible at all with the responsibility to choose. But I see these truths in tension in much the same way that the incarnation is in tension of the divine and human. I cannot explain the mystery of that, and I can't explain the mystery of being eternally chosen by the triune God and the freedom that Doug Webster had to choose Christ. 
And yet, I nevertheless believe that's true. Yes? Okay. Uh, first of all, I'd like to mention that when you were a pastor here, I was two years old. <laughs> well, you know, and, and that makes me feel really old. But those of you who thought I was young when I was here, what does that make you? Go ahead. Chapter 5 of how we're careful to how we're supposed to live, equal, like, meaning we go the Spirit. Why is it important for us to sing to one another? Like, what is the importance of uh, gathering and is it like just singing together, or are we singing to each other, or is, is it, what is the... On so many different levels, Paul would never have dreamed of the autonomous individualism that we practice. The kind of individualism that, uh, first of all, sees the gospel completely in terms of me, and the little trinity of me, myself, and I. He always saw the community first and then the individual. And we have to go, many of us have to go out of our culture in order to appreciate that because we have to go into either an Hispanic culture or an Asian culture that sees the community first and then the individual. But Paul would have always seen the community first. So singing to one another in psalms and hymns and then singing wholeheartedly to the Lord you know, fits both with making every effort along this new ethic line and being filled with the Spirit. I wonder why you didn't mention whistling, too. <laughs> I don't know, Jerry, why you didn't mention whistling. <laughs> I've, I've always been impressed with, with uh, 5 verse 10. It seems to solve a lot of problems for... Read it out real loud for me, Shelby. It just says, and find out what pleases the Lord. And it seems like a lot of times we spend more time on trying to figure out just things that we should do rather than what pleases the Lord. And I find great comfort in my life it seems to have solved a lot of a lot of problems, or that could be, by just seeking to know what pleases the Lord and to follow Him, because that's what I see throughout the Scripture. Is hey, just just please the Lord, <laughs> you know. And it seems like it's kind of stuck there, just a small thought, but. Well, and especially, really good to kind of uh, put that in the context, is this pleasing me, or is this pleasing God? And am I doing what is in life, you know, to please myself, and to live selfishly, or to please God? Well said. And we got a lot of wisdom and instruction on just what it is that pleases God, if don't we? Anyone else? Are you going to be... Talking, I, I was impressed with what he said about. Um, he said, uh, "Speaking the truth is our platform to, proc- to proclaim the truth." And that when you look at the armor of God, and I'm just wondering if, if the first three chapters, if, when you cover, will there be a theme that kind of unites 
chapters four and six with that point. Sounds like you should write on this or something. <laughs> um, well, you said it, so I'm just trying to echo it back. <laughs> well, I, I just, I was impressed with the uh, truth and truthfulness. And I think is a subplot that runs through the book. But if you were looking for a more main idea, I think it's what is it, what does it mean to be strong in Christ? And I think that's kind of the theme that comes through this Christ level. What does it mean to be mature? What does it mean to be strong? What does it mean to know the power of Christ? And certainly one aspect of that power is a people that are really truthful. And, and they commend the truth of the gospel by the truthfulness of their lives. And I, I was just making the comment that I think, you know, we could spend a lot of time in apologetics of building a case. And, and, and that, there's a real place for that. But I think it, if the church itself is not truthful, honest with our own sin, uh, honest with our concerns and our insecurities and all of that, of really being truthful so that we can be trusted, that the word that you and I give within this, the walls of this church is just the same as the, wall, the truth that we give in our homes, the truth we give at work, that you know, we're no different. That's, I think, what Paul would mean here by this belt of truth, truth and truthfulness, and speaking truthfully. Yes. Um, in four twenty, it says you have enough come in a frank way. Apparently, in the church, that was following some of the things they used to do, <coughs> and he was correcting some of that. My question is, uh, why some of the some of the things in the scriptures were so vivid and alive to me when I first came to Christ? And then I was having malaise. Uh, my, my question is, how do we keep this thing that we're asking here about, this, this, this Christ, how do we keep these things that are in this book, how do we keep them vivid and alive in our hearts like we want to? Well, posing the question the way you have is just really helpful to begin with. Even being honest enough to draw the distinction between the vibrancy of your early faith and the somewhat malaise that can grow. And I, you know, I don't know what to say that wouldn't seem or strike you as obvious. Obvious spiritual direction. Place yourself in situations where you can help. Put yourself in places of need. Be a little bit in over your head in helping others and needing to pray to God for the strength to help them. And I think you'd be very surprised at the vibrancy of Scripture. If you place yourself in a position where you do need to depend on the Lord, you do need to pray, you do need to help, you do need to be able to show compassion, you do need the resources to help, I think you'd be surprised at how vibrant this call to uh, to Christ can be. I think it's when we drift away from that kind of uh, worship and we drift away from that kind of dependence that it gets kind of... You know, I've, I've had two... The last two flights I've been on, I've been studying Ephesians and 
both times the flight attendant asked me what I was doing. One was on a trip to New York, and I realized how difficult it was to explain within a soundbite of what this is all about. And, you know, I, I got out about Christ, and, you know, I, I, I mean, I spoke truthfully. Um, I got it out, but so it's so in, it's such a huge thing. To, uh, it, and the one attendant goes to the Unification Church, which is basically Unitarian, you know, spirit, find, discover your own spiritual journey kind of place. And I'm trying to explain Jesus. She was probably just trying to make conversation with me. And I'm now trying to communicate the gospel to her. Uh, but I think put yourself in a position of real need and place, and, and that'll help. I think that helps tremendously. There's nothing more exciting when somebody that you're discipling comes to you with a question uh, about Jesus, and you're so excited to, to talk to him. And it really excites me as if I'm in their shoes 25 years earlier. I mean, that's how it excites you. That's how I stay excited. Yeah, it does help to get out of your small group and move into another place of dialogue and need with others. I won't embarrass anybody by calling on them, so you can release that, but if somebody has a question that they wish that they could ask and they're going to leave, any problem that I've raised? I've got a crazy question. Yes, Mark. <laughs> It'll be the first crazy thing you've ever said in your life. <laughs> well, I firmly believe in prayer that it is after the salvation God gives us the most precious gift He can give us. When we pray fervently, how do we know when we're praying in the Spirit? Do we have to speak in tongues? Say yes, and keep her up all night. Being so uh, 
market the spirit in such a way that people did speak in a praise language that needed interpretation in order to be understood. We have no mention of that in Ephesians or Philemon or Colossians. Or, but apparently in Corinth that was something that happened and we have some indication of that in Acts throughout. But it's not always meant by praying in the spirit in Ephesians. So we'll look at this very more. Thanks, man. Well, I think Dan, I can... Hey, Doug, would you repeat the question if you could? Before you answer? How is Psalm 68 connected? Why Paul quoted that? The Psalm 68 traditionally in the Jewish calendar was voice praised at Pentecost. And you know, then Pentecost got transformed. So Pentecost for the Christian means something entirely different. The Spirit came uh, at Pentecost. But Pentecost, and this is an interesting parallel because Pentecost in the Jewish understanding was when Moses came down from Sinai with the law. And that's what's celebrated in Psalm 68. And so it's interesting that Paul would pull in Psalm 68 when he's talking about the Spirit apportioning through Christ gifts to the church, apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. And so the Word now comes through the Spirit. When the word doesn't come down from outside, the words come through the spirit. You see, he's just touching with that, that Jewish heritage, our heritage, by quoting Psalm 68. Okay. <laughs>